All right. Hello and welcome everyone to another episode of Letter of Law Interviews. My name is Sarthak Bharadwaj and in the 11th episode of this interview series, I'm absolutely delighted, thrilled and extremely honored to be in conversation with Professor Dr. N.S. Uh, Nigam Nugaheli. Uh, I'm so sorry if I got the pronunciation of the name wrong, sir. I know you've just Perfect. told me a few minutes before recording, but I'm, I don't want to get that wrong. You, you did much better than most people, so don't worry about it. <laughs> Thank you so much, sir. Uh, so, Professor has been someone that, that's quite popular on social media these days for writing his very famous and inspiring letters to law students. And so is presently the Dean of the BML Munjal School of Law. Before that, sir has been associated with the Azim Premji University and the National Law School, Bangalore. NLS Bangalore is also where sir finished his undergraduate degree in law before moving on to New York University for an LLM and a DPhil at Oxford eventually. Uh, that's not uh, the entirety of sir's academic and professional achievements, but if I start enumerating all of them here, perhaps that would take the entirety of the episode. So I'm hoping we'll get to talk more about sir's own journey uh, in the course of the episode. Uh, before moving forward, uh, sir, thank you so much for taking the time out and being here with me. My, my pleasure, my pleasure. It's great to be here uh, talking to you. Uh, I'm sure we'll have a uh, have an interesting conversation uh, on the areas that you mentioned, um, legal education, and uh, not just the the how it is today, but also the future of legal education in India. So I look forward to. Brilliant. Thank you so much, sir. So, sir, to start this off, why don't you talk to us a little bit about yourself? I, a, few, a few days ago, I was reading your article in NLS Quirk, where you had written about your moot court in, uh, experience with Vikram Raghavan and Menaka Guruswami. So perhaps if you could talk to us about your experience in law school. And another area that I was really fascinated about was that uh, you were also admitted to the New York Bar. And for so many students that I know who wish to eventually move abroad to practice, that's sort of like a dream. So uh, what made you uh, choose academia over legal practice? So if, if you could just talk to us about that. Yeah, um, look, I was uh, the fifth batch of the National Law School of Bangalore, which, um, you know, in those, in those uh, years, it's difficult to imagine the kind of uh, uh, fervor law school admissions brings to the fore today. So you, we had, uh, I don't know, probably about 800 students applying for the law school in 1992. And we had one, one center where this law school was held. And I had to ask for directions from various people to get to Nagarbhavi in Bangalore. And uh, um, uh, it was an interesting time. It was an experiment. We were part of that experiment um, of uh, professional legal education in the liberal arts era. So they combined BA and LLB, which wasn't the case before. And they uh, made it a five-year integrated course. Interesting experiment by Professor Madhav Menon. We were all part of it. And, uh, uh, I think uh, in some ways, uh, because we were uh, one of the pioneering batches, the first few batches of the, uh, of the law school, uh, we were as much invested in what's going to happen as, as the people who organized the courses. Um, I had a, 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 a great time, it was a rigorous course, uh, I had a great time um, in, uh, uh, in uh, navigating through law school. I've written about that in Quirk a little bit, but also I don't know if you, if you remember, I wrote something on uh, Teacher's Day. Uh, in September about my the teachers that uh, inspired me and uh, two of them came from 
the National Law School Bangor and the other one was from Oxford. And um, they were really um, great teachers um, uh, who worked hard uh, without any tangible benefit to themselves. Uh, they were really um, concerned and uh, invested in their students' futures and in uh, legal education. Uh, so it was a good good time. Uh, the, the only thing that, that peculiar thing that happened, I suppose, I mean, it's not very peculiar now, but it, when I graduated, was that I left um, uh, India immediately after graduation. So I went and I had a roundabout route. I went to Canada first for a year, did some research there. Then I went to NYU for my tax LLM. I was the first person actually from India to oh, do a wow. tax LLM. NYU. Um, and then I joined a law firm in New York. I was working there for a few years. Um, and then I came back to India to teach for a little bit and then went back to Oxford and London for several years. And by the time I actually made my way back to India, it was uh, about 16 years uh, that I spent abroad. And when I went and, and I had never really, I mean, I had on and off done work in India, but I had never really worked um, full time. In India. So this was an opportunity for me in 2014 when I came to Azim Premji University and then later on National Law School to, um, to kind of really work in the Indian legal education space um, full time uh, for a, uh, after a long time. And, and that's, and then I, uh, you know, I landed up in and founded the, uh, in, in Gurgaon and founded the, uh, the law school uh, at the Emil Munjoy University, which is uh, sponsored by the Hiroo. So that's my journey in, uh, in a, in, a, in a nutshell, uh, and uh, uh, I suppose there are several strands in that journey that uh, that, that could be discussed or that or that have uh, different interesting incidents in them, as you will see in some of my letters. Yeah. Um, right. Uh, before I move on to the next question, a very interesting aspect that I'd like to mention to my viewers. Back when I was in law school, memorials were actually handwritten and then professionally typed. So if you're wondering how all of that went about, I link the, uh, an article Sir wrote for the NLS Quirk. So be sure to check that out. Uh, so, so moving not on. Just, not just the memorials, uh, yeah. Sartak, everything was handwritten. So, oh, wow. uh, you, know, uh, you know, NLS has a system which still persists to this day of having uh, regular, what they call project assignments mm -hmm. in every trimester. NLS is a trimester system. So you end up um, writing these essays every six weeks in law school. Every six weeks, you'll have to write a couple of essays. Right. And, uh, you know, I mean, you, uh, people from your generation find it hard to believe, but it, uh, all that had to be, had to be handwritten. So uh, it was quite, I mean, I, even I can't imagine now doing it um, so many years down the line, but I had to actually handwrite, you know, those 5,000 word essays um, over five years. Uh, only the last year, I remember, we started using a computer. Wow, that, that's just so unimaginable to me. <laughs> and I'm sure there's so many other law students who are watching this right now. Uh, so, sir, diving straight right in into the conversation. The very first question that I have for you, sir, um, given the fact that you are someone who has studied and taught at some of the leading universities across the country, you've taught it, across the country and the world. You've taught in London, now, now here in India. So clearly... I'm sure you're aware of the wide gaps that exist between the quality of legal education across law schools here in India. So given the fact that you are in a process of establishing an emerging new law school, how do you think 
what's colloquially called quote unquote tier 2 law school law schools can develop the skills in their students uh when they don't really have an access to a stellar faculty uh, some of the best students aren't going to school here so in this sense how can students from these universities at the end of their five year or three year legal education um develop skills which are equivalent to their peers in um, other top law schools so to speak right satak i think um you know i want to answer that question of yours which i think is a critical question for private law schools in india <clears throat> because in india the nlus uh, hold a central place in students imaginations right and uh, and and uh, private law schools uh, are yet to make the kind of mark that they ought to have been made a long time ago um and there are a number of reasons for it um, and i'll just state two reasons here um and i think when i do that i think i will deviate a little bit from the from the paradigms or structures that you just gave me okay. uh, because those are the paradigms or structures that i am trying to challenge right so uh, let me tell you let me explain to you what i mean um first you said you talked about stellar law faculty right <clears throat> the for me uh, and that's critical it's important that we need to have stellar law faculty but what do we mean by star law faculty is a question for it right clearly we are interested in faculty who are scholars because if you're not a scholar uh, if you're not able to bring to the subject a certain depth um, uh, of imagination and creativity and uh, doctrinal uh, knowledge uh, you can't expect the students to gain from it right so i we understand that everyone is on par with that but that is not the only thing that makes a star faculty right i mean I, I, so i don't want to, i want to, i want to get away from this american model in some ways which thinks of star faculty as a faculty that publishes a number of high quality work which i believe is quite important but that is not that can't be the uh, the, the the only definition of that in fact should not be it's not a sufficient definition of a star faculty for us for me a stellar faculty is somebody who's deeply interested in his or her student and his or her student experience the idea is that he may have a lot of concepts in his mind a lot of scholarship in his work but he has to be able to transmit and communicate that to the students and inspire them to look at the work critically unless he or she does that that faculty is of no use to law schools in india where as we know it's the undergrad education that's important right where we know that uh, we have a, a students get into law most of the time students get into law um, right after high school right so uh, uh, and you know i have some thoughts about that as well which i'll talk about later but i'm not sure that's exactly the right way to go about it but right now that's how it is right right now you 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 are you're done with your school and the vast majority of our law students are undergraduate law students right they need a fantastic invested personalized student experience right and that student experience can only be given by somebody who is committed to the task of teaching as much as he or she is committed to the task of research and so 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 I, and i think in my opinion there are lots of these stellar law faculty outside of nlus as well right? it may, they may not have the best publications but they have they have the ability to inspire students to think critically right? so that's one thing so i think i think what's lacking in, if if something is lacking for me that's lacking you know we need to find people 
who can provide a great ex classroom experience in and outside the classroom as well, but, but mainly classroom experience to our students so that they're able to understand that learning the law is, um, is something uh, exciting and they can be passionate about it. And this, this, is, this is very important for me because, you know, I have law professors in the US who mumble through their class sessions, right? And they may have written several books, but that's, I mean, that's not really how they're going to build a law school in India. That's not how we can build a law school. So that's one. The second thing, um, Sathak, and this is also, in my opinion, very critical, is that a lot of this, uh, this kind of uh, tier one, tier two, so-called divide, mm -hmm. in my opinion, is in the minds of the students. Right? I think that um, uh, the reason why uh, an institution uh, which is set up as a national law school is able to do better is because their students have a great peer experience, right? They see their classmates doing well, their classmates being very confident, going to mood codes, talking to people, uh, uh, and, 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 and they think, and, and that, that has kind of a little bit of an osmosis effect, and, and, there's a, and, and there's a bit of a mindset change when somebody goes into that kind of class. And that in, is missing a little bit in the, the so-called tier two schools. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that mindset change has to happen. And that again has to be done by the faculty. Right? So I always tell my students um, that, you know, it, you, it's all in your mind, really. I mean, you know, you're a person, remember again, coming back to my earlier point, you're undergrads, you know, you, all you had the benefit of is high school education in India. And we know how high school education in India is. It's very standardized. It's very standardized. There's nothing, there's no great uplift just because you've gone to one school or the other. So you go into law school pretty much on a level playing field. And so if you think, if you're less confident, or if you think you're not able to do as well as an NLU person, it's because it's in your mind. Right? It's not because of any kind of prior education. You've all read the same textbooks before you came to class. It's because of the way you think. You think that you're not, uh, you and your peers, it's a peer effect really. You and your peers think that you are uh, not as, uh, proficient um, in, um, in whatever, you know, in, in the legal language or in how you analyze things as uh, somebody from an NLU would be. And that's a mindset change we'll have to do. Right? And that mindset change will occur when people start doing tangible things. So I always push, I'm sure that you are also of the same opinion. I push my first year law students right from the beginning, first year of class. I tell them, you can complain as much as you want, but I'm just going to push you to do work harder than what you can ever imagine you'll work harder. I tell my, I'll tell the parents as well. So whenever a parent, whenever I meet a parent uh, uh, in uh, uh, in my law school, I tell the parent in about a month from now you're going to receive a phone call from your child complaining okay. about law. <laughs> ignore him or ignore her. This is what I tell the I tell the parents. I said please ignore this phone call because otherwise they're not going to be learning anything that I want them to learn. Right? And 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 um, and I'm. Some, and our law students inevitably, some of our law students inevitably do um, as well as anybody else would, right? When they at a very early uh, time in their in their career. So it's uh, stellar faculty for me is a faculty who provides a great teaching experience in addition to scholarship. Scholarship is non-negotiable, but that's not sufficient. Uh, it has to be a great teaching experience, and second, a mindset change in the students. That's critical for. Those are some very interesting points, sir. And just building on that, 
uh, you said how a stellar faculty for you is not someone who merely produces scholarship but also provides an extremely good teaching experience so on that topic sir a criticism of uh, professors legal professors in india that i've often come across is that their experiences are often devoid of the practical realities a few few months ago we had a guest lecture in our college by uh, a judge from the delhi high court who said whatever you don't learn in law school is important in court so in this sense do you think that people who eventually move to the academia or students who are who want to eventually teach the law should all of them be required to at least practice law for a bit before moving to academia to give this teaching experience a practical teaching experience or is that not required and the present system can be refined to meet all of these criticisms if at all it's a fair criticism it's a bit of a fair criticism um, uh, i'll admit that i would in fact in my personal opinion is that um, some amount of experience is always good for a law teacher some amount of legal experience is always good for a for a law teacher Uh, it doesn't have to be directly correlated to what they are teaching it's just that you get a sense of what it means to um, see the law observe the law in practice and that sense you can transmit to uh, your students it doesn't have to be subject specific at all but i think some amount of practical experience is very useful either full time practical experience or consulting experience but some amount of real world experience for the teachers um, is i think uh, very useful but again um, sarthak sometimes too much is made out of this right what's really important i think is that the teacher is enthusiastic about his or her subject right? and wants to really uh, energize the students and make them think about uh, ideas in the law a lot of these teachers about whom students complain that they don't have practical experience or they're teaching relevant things or what they're teaching is this not really giving me a sense of what happens in practice are actually disguised complaints about a teacher who's indifferent to teaching who is uh, not able to who, who's not really uh, he was a kind of job for him you know he or she is not really interested in um, it's a beautiful um, complicated uh, challenging but ultimately very um, very good profession so that uh, that uh, non enthusiasm of the teacher is sometimes gets translated into this idea that what he or she is doing is not relevant so i think that uh, so i think that issue is overstated a little bit but um, i agree I, i mean i agree partially with that uh, with the respected high court judge that uh, <laughs> you know that you know uh, it's important that people have some good real world experience in order to ensure that uh, they get a sense when they talk to the students they talk in a pragmatic manner right law is ultimately there's a lot of pragmatism involved in law uh, and and they and they are able to understand what that what that means right um, it's and they also understand sorry i'm taking a little bit of your time no no they please go ahead please go ahead law is interconnected right yeah. so uh, you know um, ibc is in the news uh, mm-hmm. the insolvency and bankruptcy code is in the news but actually the lot of issues in insolvency in bankruptcy court are kind of your bread and butter contract issues yeah. indemnities guarantees representations what happens to these kind of things in an uh, in an insolvency petition and so they're interconnected right and 
uh, somebody who's got a sense of the real world will be able to understand this better than someone who doesn't have it so that's what i meant that's that's again a very interesting take on this sir and thank you so much for sharing uh, now coming and uh, com- moving on to some of the very interesting letters that you've written and uh, when we when we were talking about uh, uh, featuring you on the podcast i started rereading uh, all of them and one really interesting aspect from a very recent letter you wrote was the fact that why law schools are important you wrote about why the necessity of law schools is so important but sir just to just to get your take on this issue there are so many law schools across the country and every month or so we hear the news of some new law school springing up in some part of the country which i in my view don't really have the necessary skills or the faculty or the peer group required to actually form the kind of law schools that we imagine so in this sense sir given the fact that the quality of legal education is unequal across the spectrum of colleges in india should there also not be an option for students who don't get into a college which can actually do good for them to not go to law school at all and instead choose an apprenticeship model and learn the practical skills from a mentor or a lawyer yeah i think we could explore the 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 uk model i mean the model you're talking about is already there in some sense in the united kingdom uh, where you have an apprenticeship uh, model um, but uh, and uh, but and of course i think as an option it should be available to everyone so i agree with you on that <clears throat> but you miss out on certain things if you go down that route and i think people should be aware of that so and 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 therefore make a choice knowing that that's what they miss out on you miss out on a great liberal arts education right you miss out on the fact that you are able to understand uh, political science you are able to read rousseau hobbes uh, and locke uh, and some people may be interested i am interested in it and i'm sure some other people are interested in it um, they uh, they are interested in exploring issues uh, of this sort uh, as part of their law school curriculum not just yeah. independently they want to know why law is important to the indian constitution and to, to kind of make that connection it'll be great for them to have gone through a political science course and a law course right and that kind of stuff you miss i think uh, just because you don't have time to do it uh, if you go through the apprenticeship system but of course some people may say look i'll i'll, I'll be i'll be an uh, apprentice but i'll also study uh, law rules so on my own time i don't need to be taught that and and that that's possible as well so as i said i think students can be given a choice the other thing sarthak is that um again undergrad students more than graduate students undergrad students sometimes are transformed not just in terms of the knowledge but also in terms of their attitudes when they go to law school it happened to me and i'm sure it happened to other people as well and that attitudinal change uh, how to manage the resources you have in order to be able to study something at a for a great length of time or how to make connections between various domains of thought and how to do that in a way that's critical precise and clear these are kind of things that i think you pick up in a law school 3 year or 5 year degree it may be more difficult to pick this up in an apprenticeship system so that that's the other thing that those attitudinal changes 
which are related to your intellectual growth um, may not be ideally suited in a, or may not ideally occur in an environment where you're working and learning at the same time. That's the only other thought I have. Absolutely. And I agree with you, sir. Uh, and on the, on the topic that sir mentioned, someone might be interested in knowing how some legal philosophers work is in, important to the constitution. Sir wrote a brilliant letter on why we should all study jurisprudence. So I'll be linking that as well in the description section. Be sure to check them out, all out. In fact, check all of the letters that sir has written. I'm, and I believe me, you'll, you'll love all of them. Uh, so moving on, sir, uh, another really interesting point that I was reading in one of your letters was that you wrote about how law students should not wait for one activity to finish before moving on to another one. And I found that really interesting because right from the first year, what I've heard from my seniors and teachers is that, look, if you're doing a MOOC, don't try to write an article or a paper also simultaneously. Or um, if your semesters are ongoing, don't try to go to court or try to intern. All of that's only going to cause a great deal of confusion in your mind. So what's your take on that? If, I mean, if you could please elaborate a bit on that, I'd love to hear your thoughts. I think these, uh, I think these activities uh, feed into each other, right? I mean, if you do a, your mooting and your writing, uh, sometimes what you're mooting about are areas in which you need to think really critically, right? And that will feed into your writing in that domain or in other domains. Similarly, if you're arranging a series of articles for your law review or you're editing articles for your law review, those are items or areas of scholarship that will have implications for your work and for your thinking in other areas. So these are not silos, they're all integrated. And that's the reason why I was encouraging students to, um, to not to restrict themselves to one activity or to wait until one activity is over. Having said that, Sata, it's for you to manage your time, right? It's for the student to manage your time. So I've seen, particularly in the National Law School where I was teaching, that sometimes mood boards play a, such a huge role in a student's lives yeah. that their classroom experience, you know, the attention to what's happening in the class is foreshadowed. I mean, they don't, they're not really focusing as much. They're not even looking at what they're studying in the regular courses because they're so focused on mood boards and, and other things. Now, part of the reason from the student's point of view is that the classes are not interesting. <laughs> they're, they're saying, Look, I don't, you know, I don't learn much from this this class and therefore I don't, you know, I'm going to move course. And, you know, there may be some, a little bit of a grain of a truth in that, I think. But, um, uh, but in, in an ideal situation, in a good law school, students must be taking their classroom experience as seriously as their extracurricular activities. It's for them to manage their time. And some of the advice you may be getting is about time management, not so much about activities, but about time management. Saying, look, if you're the kind of person who will be overwhelmed by your moot court work, then don't take on other things as well. So that it could be from the perspective of that time management idea that you must be getting. But if you leave that aside, if you're able to manage your time, doing more than one thing at the same time is always better because it's the, the, all your thinking and your actions are integrated. Right? You're, you're able to actually benefit from one activity in another. That's actually a very, very uh, good advice. And I'm, I'm, I'll try to inculcate in, it in my own uh, journey through law school, well, whatever's left of it. Uh, and so, so moving on, uh, you said some really interesting things in your answer. You said how a student might choose to focus more on his or her moot or article writing, given the fact that there's some grain of truth in the fact that uh, the classes in law school aren't really as interesting as one would uh, suppose them to be. 
So in this sense, do you think there should really be a compulsory attendance of 75% or should students be allowed to do better things with their time? And if they're allowed, if they're able to clear the exam at the end of the term, then so be it. Yeah, I've struggled with that question, actually. <laughs> so I think I'll give you two answers to your question. First, first is that, as you will soon find out, uh, there are aspects of your life that are not going to be interesting at all. Right? And, and uh, you'll have to just deal with it. I mean, I think uh, uh, I would say about 20% of whatever activities we do are going to be tedious. Um, and as long as it's 20%, I think we're doing a great job. I think we are, we are, uh, we are le leading a good life. But there will be some tedious part just filing a tax return from a tax lawyer's point of view is very a tedious exercise. So you'll have that part of your life. When you start earning money, you'll have to file tax returns as well. So there'll be some tedious, some part of your life that is aggravating and, and you will have to just, I mean, that's just life. Uh, and I think some part of your classroom experience, I must say, you'll have to just say that, that you know, I need it. I need to learn about um, uh, FEMA uh, Foreign Exchange Management Act just drives me to tears, but <coughs> I'll have to deal with it for the rest of my life. So let me just do it. Right? Um, but your attendance question, I've struggled with it myself. So we, anyone who goes abroad knows that this is a very Indian thing. In US and America, there's no attendance uh, in law schools or in college. <clears throat> Um, and so uh, we, we asked, we had to ask ourselves this question, why are we still persisting with it? And the answer again has to do with uh, the motivation levels of our undergraduate students. Graduate students, different approaches. Undergraduate students, if I don't, uh, you know, if I don't put a student in a class, uh, and, and if the student doesn't come to class at all, uh, then that student is, uh, how would we motivate him? How do we make that student do what we want him to do? Right? Um, so a student is going to say, give me the choice. Um, if your class is interesting, I'll come. If it's not, I'm not going to come. Now, the day he comes to my class, for, unfortunately, that class is not interesting. So he's going to stay away for the rest of the semester. Right? Um, how is that going to serve my purpose and his purpose? I mean, so especially when he's 17 or 18 or 19, right? Um, when he's not uh, at an age where uh, something tedious doesn't bother him too much. So, so, so my, so this is what I'm struggling with. Uh, my, my problem is uh, my job of ensuring giving a great teaching experience to the student may not even happen if I say let's not have an attendance policy. The student just won't turn up, and then it's going to be a problem for both of us. So I would say there should be an attendance policy. Um, we can quibble about the, the, the numbers, yeah. 75%, 60%, you know, we can quibble about that. We can say maybe reduce it a little bit, make it a bit more. In fact, we have a harsher attendance policy at my law school. So wow. how much is it? So they, in fact, they lose a grade if they, if they go, if they fall below uh, 75. Wow. And, uh, and so uh, and perhaps the wrong person be talking about this. <laughs> but but uh, um, uh, we can we can we can have a discussion about it we can say look listen i think that uh, the attendance requirements are very high but i don't think we can at this point of time do away with the attendance requirement itself because i don't see how in our conditions that we are in 
with our students who have got various variable motivation levels. How do we make them, uh, how do we do our job as, as teachers if they don't come to class? That's, that's actually, that, 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 that actually gives me a lot to think about and I'm sure our viewers will feel the same way. Uh, moving on to one of the final sets of questions because we're running short of time. Uh, is about legal academia, sir. I know many friends in my law school and all over the country, students who want to eventually go into teaching and want to become a professor in law. But one thing that I've seen my peers get dissuaded from is the fact that they feel that, look, if, if I'll probably go abroad for an LLM, it's going to cost me. Chances are I might not get a very good scholarship, so I'll have to pay the fees out of my own pocket. And who knows if I get a teaching job abroad or not, and eventually I might have to come back. And in India, legal academia doesn't pay that well yet, especially in proportion to the amount you've invested in your graduate studies, LLM and PhD and whatnot. Of course, it's changing with the onset of some new private law schools, but largely I think the trend remains the same. So in this sense, uh, someone who wants to join the legal, uh, legal academia, someone who's still a student, and is being dissuaded by some of these concerns. What would you say to him or her? I think um, uh, the legal academy in India pays decently. Um, the, uh, after the seventh pay commission for uh, NLUs and then private colleges, um, it's, a decent, it's a decent wage. Um, you're not gonna be earning uh, astronomical investment banker yeah. lawful salaries, but that's a trade-off that people have to make. Uh, you can, you're not going to be earning, uh, uh, you know, uh, salaries that will uh, uh, lead you to keep worrying about money. That's not the situation uh, in India anymore, in any law school, any good law school. Uh, so, um, so I think from that perspective, there's a trade-off. I mean, uh, I think I think people who um, join the academia. Are likely to um, fly economy for the rest of their lives, but that's okay. You know, I mean, people do trade-offs. I mean, it's uh, it's um, some people want to fly business, and then they shouldn't begin to academia in the first place. Uh, and and but in academia gives you an enormous amount of satisfaction, job satisfaction, uh, both in terms of the work that you do as a law teacher. You know, your teaching and your research and but also in terms of the relationships that you build with your uh, students um, and the kind of close inspiring relationships that you can build in academia has no parallel anywhere in any other profession okay? so those are the trade-offs that a person should look into i hope our, the young people reading this uh, sorry listening to this are able to appreciate the fact that um, as long as any job, academia is just an example here, but any job that they're doing, as long as it pays a decent amount, right? They shouldn't be worried about, uh, uh, about, uh, about th that should not be the sole motivation for accepting or rejecting uh, that, that position because what's important ultimately would be how you're enjoying your work. You know, as long as the money is decent, uh, so a lot of these people who go into um, busy legal practices or, or, or other very um, high paying jobs, I feel sometimes only down the line realize that, you know, money is okay, but I don't know how much enjoyment 
I'm getting out of what I'm doing. So that, I think that's an important thing that people should. I think I think job satisfaction is and, and work-life balance, but work-life balance is something. It's an overrated word. So I mean, there's no work-life balance for an academic either. We keep working, <laughs> yeah. but job satisfaction is uh, is critical. This is very important, and, and I think uh, I think uh, sometimes uh, sometimes the, the 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 that that takes a back seat for young people. Because they're more focused on what's the, the pot of gold at the end of the, mm. and I think um, it's important that they realize that uh, in the end, realize from other people's bitter experiences that in the end, job satisfaction is, is the most important. That's a great answer. Thank you so much for sharing that, sir. And now moving on to the, I think which can be the final question for today's meeting. uh you have written a lot about the importance of writing and um reading in your letters uh, so perhaps um in in the concluding bit of our conversation if you could give some book recommendations or anything some articles that you think students should read anything at all i know you've already written about it but perhaps a little bit more than that i i hope you're not going to i mean i'm wary of giving book recommendations because <laughs> uh, uh, you know um you know people invariably give very boring book recommendations so so uh, <laughs> and so i'm wary of doing it let me tell you in the law anything written by ronald walkin is makes for a great interesting reading right particularly taking rights seriously and laws empire right? these are really interesting thoughtful provocative unorthodox but essentially um, readings that will challenge the way you think about the law right so some, some of the things have some of the stuff that i have thought about uh, have all come because of the fact that uh, reading walkin has led me to to rethink many of my concepts so anything so in the area of law if you're asking me anything written by um, ronald walkin would be great but uh, you know um, then i'll be accused by you uh, and your uh, uh, peer group of again giving you all kind of boring book recommendations <laughs> Let me let me tell you that I'm reading other books as well, uh, which which might be interesting. Actually, I'm reading a very interesting book right now called Educated. Oh, I read that. Uh, right. right. Okay. So oh, it's, it's great. Beautiful. It's, it's beautiful. Book, right? I think. I think. I think. I hope I get an opportunity to write about it. Actually, in one of my letters. Wow. Um, it's a great book to read for law students. Right. It's important for law students to understand how people from different backgrounds can come. and do things differently um and it's, it's an amazing book i think um, for people to understand i'm also reading something unusual uh, um because uh, when i said this uh, i i i met some young people as you know i like meeting young people so i met some young people and i told them game of thrones is a great thing uh, and they said uh, yes absolutely sir that's great i said yeah i mean when i read it um, i loved uh, the 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 sentence construction and the and the plot development and they were like hold on a second did you say when you read it i said yes what do you mean when you read it said, it's a book actually there are five volumes of game of thrones you know i read i said we were so the, the youngsters were shocked they were like no listen i'm we are talking with the show no don't tell us you haven't seen the show yet so i said no i have not seen the show you know i i probably should see it but i have not seen it um but the book itself i think the books are uh, are also uh, very uh, very uh, light but very good reading i mean it's uh, it's well plotted and great fantasy literature so um that's what i uh, that's what i'm doing I'll, when i'm not reading loss empire i'm reading about other kinds of empires 
<laughs> what's happening in Westeros? That's actually interesting, and I agree with the Game of Thrones uh, book thing because I've read all of the books, and I'm still waiting for Georgie to write the final series and give some uh, closure. to the absolutely abhorrent ending that the creators of the show did but anyway that's an entire so you so you you so you read you done both you read the books and you and you yes, said yes i watched the series after the one came first ah so okay that's what i want to ask you yes <laughs> so that actually gave me a lot of reason to not like the series but anyway that's a discussion for another time i think for now we can wrap this conversation up uh professor nigam thank you so much for taking the time out and talking with me thank you so much for also writing all of those really really interesting and inspiring letters to all of us i look forward to them and i can't wait to read uh the next one as soon as it comes out uh thank you so much for your time thank you so much for being here thank you very much uh, sathak thank you for inviting me and i had an absolutely great time chatting with you um and uh, best of luck for your series um and uh Uh, and uh, hope um, that you and everybody else who uh, is in this uh, in this conversation um, found it interesting thank, thank you. you so much sir